Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. Welcome back. As the title of our episode indicates, this is the second part of our property insurance conversation with Andrea Northrup, vice president and partner with Insurance Office of America. If you haven't listened to part one, be sure to check it out whenever your schedule allows. For now, we're going to pick up right where we left off with Andrea and dive into more on the property insurance crisis in Florida. So what about umbrella coverage? Is that something that every association should carry? I strongly recommend umbrella coverage, and I recommend it really based on multiple fronts, which is what type of exposure do you have within your community that may result in a large loss? What type of person on average do you have coming in within your community? who might be somebody who's going to be injured? And then what type of owners do you have within your community that need that level of protection on a high limit loss? There was a a discussion recently about, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's 718-119, which says if there's insufficient insurance or inadequate insurance to cover in a loss, then the unit owners themselves are exposed up to the fair market value of their units. You have just freaked out unit owners listening to this podcast, but okay. (laughs) I apologize, but it's a legitimate consideration when they're evaluating this, which is if you've got unit owners, and especially right now, the market is hot, the fair market value of your unit right now is very high. So the amount that you potentially could be exposed to is very high. So that if you opt to only carry $10 million of umbrella coverage and you have a $20 million loss, you know, it's not that they just pay the 10 million and say, oh, well, there's the, you know, remaining 10 million. There's nothing we can do about it. If they take a look at it and say, well, there is something that we can do about it. And it's up to, you know, the fair market value of the average unit owner. You're going to wish that the association had carried a much higher umbrella limit. So it's definitely something to take into consideration. However, right now we're seeing a pullback in the, in the umbrella marketplace. The carriers I was going to say, are you, are you going to tell us next that, well, it's, you should have it, but you're going to have a hard time finding it? hundred percent. So I just had an association that just went through this at Renewal. For years, they've been carrying a $100 million umbrella limit. And last year, I believe that premium was around $11,000, relatively inexpensive compared to traditional businesses and the cost of umbrellas. This year, the most that carrier would offer them is $50 million, so half as much coverage. The Renewal was $23,000. So they were paying more than double to get half as much coverage. I knew you were going to tell me bad news. I can't. <laughs> it's all bad news. I'm just saying it with a smile. That's about all I can bring to the table these days with how bad the market is. Well, we'll have to take it. So years ago, the Florida Condominium Act was amended to allow groups of associations to provide property insurance through a self-insurance fund. We called them SIFs. I haven't heard anyone mention this option for years, but with this current insurance crisis, do you think that's an option that's going to resurface? It's a question I've been asked more frequently in the last six months than I had prior six years. So it's definitely something that people are paying attention to. The logistics of making it happen, I think, are what the pushback is. It's kind of one of those things where it's possible, but is it practical? Is it something that's easily attainable? And how much is going to have to go into underwriting it? Where are they going to get the proper funding for this self-insurance fund? Are they going to have an adequate amount that's going to satisfy the state? Are they going to have an adequate amount that's going to satisfy mortgage lenders? That's where they're really going to run into issues in trying to put together the self-insurance fund. I think it was 2008, where it was the Palm Beach Windstorm Insurance Trust, where you know there was a strong push and a lot of backing and good information that went into it, and it still was not able to be brought to fruition. So I think that's really where we've struggled over the years in trying to find something that fits into that box of the self-insurance funds. 
So the statute still permits it. I remember the Palm Beach SIF. None have ever come to fruition. So we'll see. And how would you even organize it? In Palm Beach, you had all the communities were kind of lumped together. Wouldn't you really want to do it across? It's a very large state. Wouldn't you really want to get associations around the state so you kind of spread the risk? I think you definitely would, but I think you're probably going to see some major variation either in construction methods or finding from an insurance basis that even though it might be Tampa, Jacksonville, and Palm Beach, that there's still just too much catastrophic wind exposure risk for a single carrier to be comfortable. It's the same reason why those national carriers that are looking at catastrophic wind risk are saying, it's not enough for me to have some in Texas and Louisiana and Alabama and Florida and North Carolina and South Carolina. That's still too much spreading the risk that far. But how come we can spread the risk on flood and not windstorm? We have a national flood program and we have rising and we have rising sea levels. And so we still have, and I know at some point they were talking about doing away with the national flood program, but I guess just what you said, we've got earthquakes and wildfires out in California. We've got tornadoes in the Midwest. We've got hurricanes in Southeast. We can't come up with any sort of a national program for windstorm? We haven't yet. There has not been that mechanism to be able to put it together where it's going to be financially stable. From the flood program, I will have to get back to your listeners, but it has run at a deficit for years and years and years. And that's even after billions of dollars were forgiven from the program. I mean, it, it does. it is not necessarily actuarially sound either for what they have to charge or for the financials that are available to them. It's in place because the private insurance market, for the most part, has written off flood as an exposure throughout the country as something they're not willing to take on. If we see wind go the way of flood, it's something we all need to take a big deep breath on and then reevaluate where we're building. I'm going to be so depressed after this episode, (laughs) only because I see this getting worse with the extreme weather events we've seen over the last couple of years. And there's no indication that we're going to reverse course on those. Absolutely. I would tell you, I think Dorian really was an eye opener. Because if you look at the Miami-Dade building code as being one of the most stringent building codes even in the country, and I believe it's 145 miles per hour of sustained winds, I think Dorian was at 185 mile an hour sustained winds with gusts up to 235 miles an hour, meaning even those buildings built within the last few years built to the Miami-Dade code still were not sufficient in strength to sustain that one storm. And that one storm came within 50 miles of our coast. We had billions and billions of dollars at risk in a real estate exposure. And a lot of people took a big deep breath and went, oh, that's different. And it was eye-opening. All right, let's let's talk about something a little easier to fix. Concierge service. So in a lot of my communities, Andrea, we have a lot of staff. We have a lot of employees. One of my my Sunny Isles communities has 50 employees. They do everything from, you know, setting up your beach chair, they've got a breakfast bar, what have you. But a lot of these employees off hours, they will assist owners inside their units. Okay, they will help. So that's their that's part of the community lifestyle. How does an association address those potential risks when you have association employees that are entering units and doing work for the owners. This is going to revert back to my suability versus liability, which is going to start first. And then this is more about anticipating the defense for what needs to take place because of the inevitability of being brought into the suit, which is many of my associations who were in this position have done, I would say one of two things. They've either halted the process altogether And because they've experienced the loss, they've been brought into the claim, they've seen the potential risk and the downside and said, that's it. We have a firm rule. You cannot engage in this practice. The second part is they may allow it 
and then they issue strong letters sent out on repeated notice to the unit owners, which is so-and-so is allowed to do XYZ between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. And this is the only time in which they're operating on behalf of the association. And if you engage this person into your unit at 501 through 759 or what have you, it is on your own time. They are not our employees. They do not have our insurance. They do not have our benefit and they do not have our blessing. It's not going to prevent you from being sued. But the hope would be that it would make you successful in not being found liable. But if you're looking at a way to minimize risk or transfer risk, that's a tough decision that those boards are going to have to come to, which is as our society becomes more litigious, which outweighs the benefit of having them engage in this activity? Or is it going to be preventing the association from being sued because we know it's going to happen? It's just a matter of when. Yeah. And a hold harmless, and I've prepared many of those agreements, it's not going to fully insulate you from potential liability. Correct. And it depends on which direction. Is it the employee that's engaging in it that says they're going to hold harmless? Is it the unit owner that says that they're going to hold them harmless? And then it's only as good as the backing. Are there funds to go after so that if you bring somebody in on the 18th floor and they're replacing a garbage disposal, which seems like it should be no big deal, but they accidentally break a plumbing line and now it's flooding down 17 floors and it's damaging 34 units and you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. Does the unit owner have the capacity to indemnify the association for that level of exposure? Does the employee in their off hours have sufficient insurance in place in order to fix that? We really have to look at worst case scenario, address worst case scenario, and then compare it to the reward. Fair point. So what about the association, like these large master associations in these very large communities where they have events, they have theaters, they put on productions, they bring in entertainment, and they have people coming in from the outside? What kind of coverage should that kind of association have? So it's going to be event specific. So they really need to run it past the current carrier who's in place to make sure that they understand what the risk is. Because inevitably, no matter how hard we try, there's always a certain amount of lack of information that gets passed between the association into the insurance agent to fully understand the exposure that the community might be engaging in. So one is making sure that you're sitting down and saying, okay, here are all of the activities that we are engaging in. Is our insurance policy sufficient or is there something more we need to do? Special events policies can be fantastic. If it's out of the ordinary, here's your governing documents. And they say that, you know, you're responsible for maintaining the common elements and keeping up the community clubhouse or whatever it may be. But it doesn't say entertain us and keep us enlivened and make it open to my surrounding neighbors who I play pickleball with so that they can come see it too. You want to make sure that you're really kind of staying within the boundaries of what you're supposed to be. And if you opt for some sort of special event, separate out that policy from your standard general liability policy and say, okay, we're going to have these six events. These are going to be outsiders who are coming in. We're going to open it up to outside of the community. Are they charging for it? You know, what does that look like? Are they making money off of the events? And so that falls back more to the attorney as well on that profit, not for profit status, but it's definitely something the underwriters are going to be interested in because general liability policies, they're rating it off of maybe the square footage of your clubhouse, the number of pools, the number of sports courts, and then the number of units within the community. There's an expectation people are going to have over guests to play pickleball. They're going to go swimming in the pool. They're going to come over to visit friends. There's not an expectation that it's going to operate as an entertainment hall. Right. What you just said is so important. I hope our listeners really understand that because I question how many actually sit down. Look, for the big communities, and I'm talking about the King's Point, the Century Villages, where they have a whole schedule, a yearly schedule mapped out. We're going to have X number of shows a year. 
I question how often they do reach out to the insurance agent and say, do we have coverage for this? And here's what we're planning to do. But I'm also thinking, Andre, about the communities where they have that clubhouse and the owners can reserve the clubhouse for special events. And really, the association or manager is only thinking about the cleanup fee and the deposit, not whether or not does this particular owner have sufficient coverage in the event that something happens during this private event. Absolutely. So we see that often. And at some point, a lot of my clients, we joke around about me wanting to wrap them in bubble wrap. So I say, you know, I want to isolate you. We can only, you know, do so much if we engage in nothing. And then we hope we still don't get sued. Um, But there is definitely an importance of setting parameters for what is and is not acceptable. The majority of general liability association insurers will not insure inflatables, bounce houses and slides and mechanical rides, things of that nature. So if they are able to rent out the clubhouse, you need to make sure it's very clearly understood. If you're using it as a birthday party, you cannot put an inflatable in the side lawn. We are uninsured for that so that even if we end up not being liable, we have no defense in our suability when we're brought into it for it being on our common property. And then for the unit owners to understand if they're indemnifying the association for utilizing it, do they understand what type of exposure they've just taken on? It can get extremely hairy. Then you have to look at, okay, what are our rules about alcohol? What are our rules about outsiders coming in? How many people? What are the times? Do we need security? There's a lot of potential risks associated with it that we may not have thought of 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. The bounce house thing concerns me. And that's something I'm going to have to follow up with you on. It's been two years since the pandemic started. Can you believe it? Two years ago. And that is when you and I were on a a, a webinar together. And I remember I first heard you talk about gap coverage because we were talking about, again, suability and potential liability for COVID-related claims. This was early on. This was pre-vaccine. This is when we really still did not know what we were dealing with can't believe it's been two years, Andrea. It's hard to imagine. The gap policies were going strong there for the first year. Uh, We've definitely seen some associations back off of them now. There was a little bit of, I'll call it misunderstanding when there was the change in the law. We always do highlight it's still the suability. It's just a much higher burden that has to be established for the liability to kick in. But the general liability carriers, the directors and officers carriers, they've really taken that belts and suspenders approach to their policies, which is if you weren't certain before, it is a communicable disease exclusion and here it is and we're highlighting it and you have no coverage for it under these policies. The same for the umbrella policies. So for those that are still worried about it, that gap coverage continues to exist. It has to be that level of lawsuit. It has to be denied by the underlying carrier for an exclusion and then they kick Again, but there's always exposure in every policy, even beyond the use of the policy for a COVID-related claim. Other associations, we've seen Legionnaires claims, we've seen Scabies claims. Those are all fall under the communicable disease as well. Or you could just have a standard fungus bodily injury liability claim, and that's excluded under a general liability policy that could be picked up by gap insurance. So there's some. I, re- I, I remember a case with Legionnaires related to a, a jacuzzi in the community. Have you heard about any COVID claims that have been made in the last two years? The only one that comes to mind, and it was just, I think, a Palm Beach Post article was more related to, I think, where they prevented the people from leaving the building. You know, it wasn't. Oh, that that, that was right. The unlawful uh, imprisonment. Correct. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we've, we've seen a lot go both ways. Um, it, it created a lot of claim related action. And and that's trickled over into the directors and officers premiums as well, which is for the associations that were hesitant 
to reopen until they had clear understanding guidelines of what their risk would be or their exposure would be and people being upset that they didn't have access to the amenities where we saw a good number of directors and officers claims come in that way. I want it to be open. I demand the pool be open. I demand that all my recreational facilities are open again and the boards being more cautious or hesitant in their approach. In the last two years, it's really been an absolute perfect storm. Property, general liability, directors and officers and umbrella all hit a hard market across the board. It's unlike anything we've ever seen. Well, I can't let you leave until we talk about fidelity bonding, payment and performance bonds. So let's start with fidelity bonding. Who needs this and in what amounts? Every association who falls under 718, 719, or 720 (laughs) or has a Fannie Mae loan within their community is likely going to be required to carry one. So what you're looking at there, it's probably poorly named when we call it employee theft. But if you look at definition, employee theft should be broad enough that it includes the volunteer boards, endorsements on there for the management company or the bookkeeper, whomever it may be that has access to the funds, because the association is reliant upon those funds in order to pay the bills, in order to keep the association moving forward. You would be able to explain better than I would. I explained it as maximum funds on hand at any one time. So if somebody got into all of the accounts and was able to clear you out on the highest day of the year that those balances are going to be, that's the amount that we need to look at. So if it's reserves plus operating, you collect everything on the first of the year for the year, plus the reserves, what's that balance? And then that should be the limit that we would be looking at. If we go further, we're going to recommend beyond the statute that fidelity bond should include forgery, alterations, funds transferred fraud. If you can purchase social engineering at a sublimit, it's a great idea to get social engineering. Those across the board are going to be the recommended coverages in addition to the traditional crime fidelity employee theft that is required. Anybody who controls or disperses the association funds should be covered by a fidelity bond. I will tell you, Andrea, that most of them are thinking two months of assessments. So based on what you just said, not nearly enough if you've got somebody who is controlling or dispersing funds and they have access to the reserve accounts, they have access to the operating. Yeah, sounds like there's a lot of associations that do not have adequate fidelity bonds in place. Right. And you don't want to discover that when, you know, there's that unfortunate situation that's unfolding on the West Coast of Florida right now, where there are a lot of associations suddenly looking and saying, what is our balance in our bank account compared to what we thought it was? And do we still have money? And is our crime limit going to be sufficient to make us whole? I teach a a fraud prevention class as part of our board certification classes. And experts say that when you uncover a fraud, by the time you uncover the fraud, it's been going on for about two years. That's the average. So I'm sure there's people scrambling after this episode to say, let's look at it. But if you haven't looked at your accounts, you do need those checks and balances in in place. So absolutely. And that's still one of probably the least expensive line item of coverage um, after maybe the if any workers comp policy. And it's endorsable in the middle of the year. So if you look at it and say, you know, we only have $100,000 of coverage and we need $500,000 of coverage, you can reach out to the agent and ask them to increase. And just buy more. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Payment and performance bonds, anything you want to let us know about those? I have had more than one association (laughs) uh, lose a roofer mid-roofing project who has funds on hand to purchase supplies for the next. We have definitely seen those go out of business. And I think it is a prime time, especially when you're looking at it right now with so many people engaging in construction and supply chain issues and just generally speaking, trying to get quality people with a good experience in there. I strongly recommend them 
because it's one of those things where call it your prenup and laugh at it when you take it out of the closet at your 50th anniversary party. (laughs) And we all think, oh, isn't that cute? Uh, You would rather have it when you need it than discover that you should have had it and you don't. And the price is usually relatively small in comparison to the exposure. If you're looking at maybe 1% to 4% of the total price of the project. And then it's usually going to be based off of the creditworthiness of the contractor who's engaging in the work. So that's a good indication to you as a board. You know, if your contractor is having difficulty securing a performance or a payment bond, that might mean the carrier has found something that they don't like. It's a red flag. It's a red flag. You shouldn't ignore it. Exactly. So they're almost doing a little bit of preventative digging for you and, and underwriting to see if that's going to be a good person worth ensuring of the risk. Yeah. For the large projects... If you've got a contractor who walks off mid-project, not only are you at a serious disadvantage when you try to contract with a replacement contractor to come in, they know they've got you over a barrel. If they see a concrete restoration project that's only a third completed, and now you're calling them to come in and complete it. I mean, there is a way if you handle your progress payments correctly, and you're doing that, then you you really can evaluate, do we need a payment or performance bond if we are handling the progress payments in a way that we are only paying for the project that's been completed thus far. But even then, you're still going to be at a disadvantage if you have your contractor go bankrupt or just simply walk off the job midstream. So I'm a big fan of payment or performance bonds. I know some people say, good, you can get it, you pay for it. And again, this is something that, you know, better safe than sorry. Absolutely. A lot of insurance companies say that there's fraud. And this is why we are in the crisis we are in today, because people are getting free roofs. They're getting carpeting throughout the entire or tile throughout the entire unit. There's just been so much fraud. And that's why we are in the dire straits we are today. As an insurance expert, is there validity to that? How much fraud was really out there? And is that the reason we are in a crisis today? My first caveat to that would be I have not dug in deep into the numbers to be able to see. I think that it's probably more likely than not you saw a significant amount of that on the individual policies. In the HO3 policies for the single family homes, I have had many clients that were contacted by roofers and adjusters that two years after Irma or just before the deadlines for filing whatever the recent windstorm claim would be said, hey, we just happened to be flying a drone over this building and we noticed you've got some roof damage and we think we can get in there and we can file a claim for you. Whether there's validity in what they're finding and there's just a ton of unknown damage that existed and they pushed forward for this, but we definitely saw a number of carriers have a response to it where if they said, okay, here's your new roof, you paid your deductible, and then there was a non-renewal that probably followed the next year because goodbye and goodbye. Here's your new roof and goodbye. There are definitely questions as it exists. I think, can we blame the entire marketplace solely on that? If it was hanging on by a thread to begin with, it definitely did not help. If it was just enough that once that void opened up, And all the other carriers said, well, if you're leaving, I'm leaving too. Or if this is the nature of the people we'll be engaging with and doing business, we don't want to be there. But I think there are other factors involved. The fraud nature, you saw some carriers kind of attempt self-regulation at that by putting on endorsements that said, if it's cosmetic only, we don't have to fix it. Your tiles may not match, but we'll fix the portion of the roof that's wrong. You see some different endorsements that have gone on to the policies as workarounds for some of that as well. But I would have to really dig deeper into the numbers to give you, I think, a more thorough answer. 
On the other hand, we've got associations with legitimate claims who have not pursued them because they just don't want to get into the fight. And there was a case years ago out in Southwest Florida, and it was related to an insurance claim that sprung out of a hurricane. And the board just didn't push back. They had a legitimate claim. And instead, they just specially assessed the owners a couple hundred thousand dollars apiece to make these repairs. Also a major problem. So if your association has a legitimate claim, your board has an obligation to pursue that claim. I would agree with you there. And I think it's important to analyze every situation as it comes up. And if there's insurance coverage that's going to be in place, my advice right now to most associations is if you have current damage, you're going to have difficulty getting another insurance company to come into place and offer you new terms while you might be fighting it out with the other carrier to get the coverage that you're entitled to. So there's going to have to be some way to figure out how do we special assess now and reimburse later, but we've got to get the building reestablished or else we're going to find ourselves uninsurable. And that's going to be doubly painful because now we haven't received our insurance money and we can't get insurance moving forward so that they should be pursuing those legitimate claims with the tenacity to make sure they're getting the coverage that they've been paying for. They do need to make the building whole and not just wait for the insurance proceeds to come in. So since it's a perfect segue into claims, association has a claim. What role does the public adjuster play? And I should back up. What role does an adjuster play? First thing that's going to happen is the insurance company is going to send out its adjuster, correct? Correct. So the majority of property carriers who are going to be in Florida are going to use a third-party adjuster. So it's going to be a company that that your insurer contracts with for their adjuster to go out, and they're going to take a look at the damage. They're going to say what they think the scope of repair needs to be, and they're also going to attempt to discern what the cause of loss was, because we have to determine if the cause of loss triggers coverage based upon the policy terms. They are hired by the insurance carrier, so that's important to note. I would say there's a very good portion of time, at least with my clients, the initial adjuster's estimate is going to be under but then you're going to apply for supplemental payments. They may say, oh, we just need a flood cut and it only has to be three feet of all the drywall. And the contractor for the association who's saying, no, here's the reasoning behind why it needs to be a higher cut. Here's why it has to be replaced and it can't be repaired. Here are the differences between the two. And then there's a a meeting of the minds. So that third-party adjuster who represents the carrier, the contractor who usually works up the scope of replacement or repair for the benefit of the association. Most of them are going to be using that Xactimate system. It's going to be a similar one where we all agree standard baseboard is going to be worth X. This type of carpet is going to be worth X. This type of electrical is going to be worth X. And then it's a question of how much gets repaired. If those two can't come to a meeting, if the third-party adjuster believes that the cause of loss was not a covered peril, if it gets to a level of disagreement where the coverage isn't triggered or enough coverage isn't triggered that the client thinks should be covered, that's when a public adjuster is going to step in. So the public adjuster is normally hired by the client directly, and they're going to take their fee associated with their recovery, and they're going to negotiate between the carrier to get more coverage or get coverage applied based upon what they believe the terms of the policy to be and the cause of loss. So for folks listening, the initial adjuster who comes out is hired by the insurance company and is probably looking at the claim a little bit differently than the public adjuster you may hire independently to come out and give an assessment of the damage. Correct. Okay. So adding on to all the problems we just discussed is the fact that far too many owners in multifamily buildings fail to have interior coverage, which we call HO6 policy. 
for a very brief period of time, the law was changed. 718 was changed many years ago to require owners to carry that coverage. It's kind of still implied that owners will have that interior coverage, but it is not definitively stated right now that they have to have that coverage. And years ago, the statute was changed for just one year to say that an association could purchase or force place that missing coverage if owners didn't have it. That went by the wayside and we're back to where we are. Some associations do actually, Andrea, they amend their governing documents to say that owners have to have that interior coverage. I know I've done amendments that say when you're wanting to lease out your unit or when you're screening new purchasers, they have to provide proof of that coverage. But how easy would it be for an association to actually today buy missing coverage, buy a HO6 policy for the units in their building that don't have them? It would be fairly difficult because there's not a product in the marketplace. And we ran into that, I think it was 2009, 2010, when that law went into effect and then disappeared, where there wasn't a large availability in the marketplace to secure this coverage because there was a question as to whether or not the association had an insurable interest in the interior of the policy. A mortgage lender has an insurable interest in the interior of the policy. And so if you don't provide them with adequate coverage, they have that ability to force place and they have a broad availability because they do it so frequently to secure that type of product. There are some liability products that can be bought for associations based upon certain coverages, but they're not very popular. They're not used too often in the condominium association space. I do think it is extremely important for associations. I prefer associations that have that in place because historically, my experience has been that when you have a loss, a sudden and accidental loss, If the unit owners do not have individual insurance, they're looking for somebody else to pay for that sudden and accidental loss. Bingo, you just hit the nail on the head. If they have their own insurance policy, they tender it over to the insurance carrier. Their insurance carrier pays based upon the terms that they purchased in their policy slash contract. And if the carrier thinks there's true negligence, then the carrier has that opportunity to potentially subrogate. We have the experience with unit owners who are uninsured. There is a much higher instance of them filing claims against the association in an attempt to be reimbursed, even when no negligence was present on behalf of the association. Absolutely. Many of the disputes that come across my desk are for that very reason, because the owner did not carry the HO6 interior coverage. And they're saying, well, who's going to pay for, you know, my damaged carpeting, my damaged appliances, my da-. And again, listen, th- that's not to say that sometimes I do have owners that have the coverage and they don't want to put a claim in on their own coverage because they don't want to run the risk of being canceled or having their premiums increase. But across the board, you're going to have a problem if you don't have in multifamily buildings, if your unit owners are not insured for the interior contents of their units. I agree with you completely. I mean, the the instance is significantly higher with the uninsured unit owners than it is with our insured units. So for a lot of these water leak claims, and there's one company in particular I'm thinking of, and I'm not going to name names, but whenever their insured suffers damage due to a water leak, their immediate response is association was negligent and they file a lawsuit. Has that played a role in some of the things we've been talking about today? It definitely played a role in the increases in the general liability premiums because overnight, the general liability carriers became interior property carriers because of the allegations of negligence against the association for property damage, where the property policy on a first party claim was insuring up to the unfinished drywall. The general liability policy then was being brought on the hook for the floor coverings and the cabinets and countertops and personal property. And oftentimes there was that business judgment that was made, which was, well, I can bring it to court and I can win and I'm going to spend $40,000 or I can settle for $12,000 and make this go away. But when you do that hundreds of times and you're only collecting 
$80 per unit for general liability premium, and then you're still on the hook for whoever may slip and fall on a common area, the general liability carriers wanted no part of it. What I can say is while the change to 718 may not have been what was originally expected for it to be on the matters of subrogation, the demands have slowed significantly from what we were seeing before July of 21. I have seen that. Did OIR or Office of Insurance Regulation, did they step in? That was our hope that they were going to step in and kind of investigate this practice of claiming negligence before actually doing an investigation. Did they step in at all? Or That's a great question. I do not have the answer to, but it's definitely one worth our investigation to see <laughs> if that leaned a little bit on them to start making that decision. But I have, I've seen a noticeable slowdown in those demand letters coming through emails. There's always a cottage industry that crops up every time with something. Well, you mentioned subrogation. If you could quickly just cover for our listeners what subrogation is. So subrogation in its basic essence is the ability of one party to stand in another party's shoes and collect whatever rights that first party would have. So for example, if the ever-present water heater claim, if the upstairs unit owner has a 25-year-old water heater that has been on its last leg forever and they're duct taping it and foam sealing it in an attempt to get out another day out of it, when that fails and it floods the downstairs unit owner, the unit owner downstairs files an insurance claim their insurance carrier can make them whole, put the unit back in the way it should be. But then the insurance carrier would have the rights that that unit owner would have had to sue the upstairs neighbor and say, listen, it wasn't just that this thing unexpectedly suddenly failed and it flooded. You were negligent. And because we have the rights that our unit owner would have had, we now want to be reimbursed for what we paid out to our client. And that same thing exists for HO6 carriers against other unit owners, HO6 carriers against associations, associations against unit owners. It can play in a lot of different fields, but it's basically one party's ability to sue on behalf of another party to be made whole. With the goal being that the culpable party being the one to pay. Absolutely. I have to ask you, we started out this episode talking about the fact that the 2022 legislative session, which ended on March 11th in Florida, concluded without any reforms to property insurance in Florida. And I know that there were reforms made last year and the comment was, let's wait 18 months, right? Let's let these things marinate and let's see what happens. Although it's not marinating in a good way from what we've seen. Souring um, might be a better term. Yeah, it's, it's souring more than anything else. My question is, how big of an impediment do you think to Florida's economic growth our property insurance crisis is going to play? Significant and in an unsustainable manner. In having this discussion recently with another party, we were discussing how condominium associations have really operated as a manner of affordable housing, especially for a good portion of our senior population. And if our senior population who's living on this fixed income, that fixed income is not keeping up with the increase in the expenses and the maintenance and the reserves and all of the other factors that go into play. So the insurance is going to play a significant role in it, but it's only one small role in what's occurring based upon what's going to happen with with reserves, the need to be repairing the buildings up to a much higher standard than has been the case, that the true cost of living in a multifamily building is going to have to be realized much sooner than it has been in the past. And And the insurance carriers don't want to be the ones who are holding the bucket at the end of the day. They are going to be increasing their rates until they feel comfortable that they're going to be operating at a sound level or they're going to leave and it's going to be citizens. And it's going to be that market of last resort, which is still significantly higher in their rates than the private market is for the majority of our carriers. So that the cost of living in Florida is going to go up and continue to go up astronomically 
or there's not going to be really a mortgageability. It's really going to become a cash industry for those who can afford to live here and buy here and everyone else is going to be priced out. Affordable housing. And you know what? People living in these multifamily buildings, yes, there's a fair amount of seniors on fixed incomes. Guess what? There's also young working people. Yes. There's going to be no affordable housing for them. There'll be no service people throughout Florida or pockets of Florida. And I can't imagine how our economy is going to continue to grow and flourish without affordable housing. This all kind of is full circle problem here. No, you've you've spelled it out quite adequately for what we need to look at from a projection from a long term, because while market value may increase for those who want to live here, the people who need to service the people who are moving in or who have continued to live here or teach our children or our emergency personnel, there's going to need to be some balancing. A balance is going to have to happen in one direction or another in order for them to either continue to maintain their lifestyle here and keep up with the expenses as they continue to grow or I don't know what the or looks like because you, <laughs> you can sell your unit and then move to another state, but then who's going to fill that service role? I guess we'll keep moving inland. I don't, I don't know. But, but Andrea, you promised to solve the property insurance, the residential insurance crisis in Florida when you agreed to come on here. So last question, there's no silver bullet, but do you have any ideas of how to get us out of this mess? Just even one. I gave this some good thought. <laughs> And there's there's no one clear answer because the problem is so broad and it's entrenched so deep in so many different facets. So now we're going to have to start a much bigger, harder conversation as it relates to wages, as it relates to social security, as it relates to debt, as it relates to infrastructure, as it relates to subsidies. And where is that money going to come from? Who's going to pay? And how is that going to be decided and then incorporated to maintain what's in existence? So I have far more questions to bring to the table, unfortunately, than I do answers today. You know what? You have given so much valuable insight to our listeners. I think we all have to get to work. Okay. We all have to get to work. And maybe a 60 day session is far too short in Florida to solve these kind of problems. I know we've got a special session called for redistricting. I hope if we have any legislators listening to this podcast that you'll consider expanding the scope of that special session to include the residential insurance crisis that we're experiencing right now. Let's get to it before it gets worse. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. Donna, thank you for having me. This has been very enlightening and enjoyable. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect. 